If you do not believe in our city that much, if you can't see how spectacular our city is, even within a crisis and how much we come together, you are never a real part of it. For fuck's sake, a theater podcast, aka 4FS Podcast, Episode 7, DNC and NYC. Alright, here we go. Hello everyone, and we are here in episode seven. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so happy to have you all back and joining us. And if it's your first time, well, welcome to the show. I'm Aaron Salazar, a award-winning New York City producer and theater director, founder, all that good stuff. You can check more out about that at 4fspodcast.com. And we are moving into our third of a series of four episodes, second to last. And if this is your first time tuning in, the thing we get the luxury, the thing we, the royal we, get the luxury of doing is having these beautiful artists hang out for a month of podcasts so we can unpack some real shit. And it's amazing how quickly it actually goes by. Before you know it, like the episode comes out and then I'm like clamoring to send them information be like, read this immediately. Uh, cut to like six minutes before we go on air. Bless their hearts. Okay, let's talk about it. We've got Danny Marin here. He is the founder of the newly formed and executive director of Cone Limon Productions, a production company that is here to basically burn down the patriarchy. I'm obsessed with it. He's an award-winning producer. You might know his work from J.R. Armstrong Johnson's annual Halloween extravaganza. I put a spell on you, the return of the Sanderson sisters. He also worked on Two-Hander, which I was obsessed with, with Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts, the legendary performances of Two-Hander. He himself is also nominated for multiple Broadway World Cabaret Awards, including Best Solo Show and Best Show and Best Music Direction. No small feat. And he was most recently on HBO's Mrs. Fletcher, bringing it around to another alumni of HBO's Mrs. Fletcher. We've got Cheech Manahar here. He is currently playing this dude named Kevin G on Broadway in Mean Girls. And uh, some of you might know him from that. It's just it's this show, Mean Girls. I don't. I think it was a movie, right, Cheech? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Small yeah. indie film. A little indie. It was a small indie film that he actually brought into the city via DC at the National Theater. So uh, he he has some ties to that to that experience. He's also been in Mary Poppins and New Kid at Syracuse Stages, and Cheech is a Syracuse drama alum. He's also just a general badass and a teacher, by the way, DM this young man. Also, it should be said, Cheech Manahar, I was you tubing you, and I was pretty obsessed with your combos you guys were doing when you were doing West Side Story. Oh my God. Yeah. I was like, look at Cheech. Wow, we're breaking real, it the fuck down on the, real on the deep four there. and the six. I was like, this is like a B side that I am obsessed with. <laughs> and I, I also was obviously I was stalking Danny as well in his if you just put Danny Marin in YouTube and it's like, hi, here's me with everyone in front of a mic. It's it's off the hook. So check these boys out. I mean, if if you know. Mike, I mean, why are you listening? Get into it. So everyone, let's hear it for Danny and Cheech. Boys, I'm so happy you're here. Um, I have to I have to actually admit something, Cheech. When we were first becoming friends, I like did a deep dive like rabbit hole of like YouTubing you. Oh no. Yeah, <laughs> no. there's some real deep cuts there. Look, in 2014, 
everyone wanted to be a choreographer, right? Like it was like oh. everyone in the world decided that they Always. were going to be a choreographer and do their thing. And there were like two people that were actually good at it. Like, <laughs> ended up doing it. Yeah. But I loved watching you show your combination of like hip hop dancing that you like did. I was like, this is fucking fear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did. I did a deep dive research. <laughs> I mean, what's, what's not to love? I, I, it, I'm truly, truly honored. Also, you, the, also the video of you doing your uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Oh yeah, like your audition. Egg, it was my, it, my it, Mean Girls it, audition rap. It's yeah, so good. It's so funny. I, so I, wait, so the origin story behind that is quite literally: you created the parody and had the balls to do that as your first thing you presented. Yeah, basically, the the breakdown said that they needed uh, a person that was Indian that was. Uh, funny and could rap. And so I decided I, I'd been writing parody lyrics for a while up to that point. It was kind of my first foray into songwriting or rap writing. And so I decided that I was going to do a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air parody rap. And so I, I walked into the open audition and because uh, I was non-equity at the time, I walked into the open audition and was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. Here we go. And made some history because that shit is fire <laughs> it it really really is if you haven't done it just put cheech manahar fresh prince and much like will smith he will instantly populate the top of the page you know it could be <laughs> it could be worse uh, and you know your your fans are obsessed with you so the legend of cheech I want that on a t-shirt, the legend. Of the cheech. legend of cheat. Well, I already <laughs> told you there's a TikTok where uh, a young lady is expressing how she thinks she needs to start a club about her obsession with him. Oh, she doesn't have to worry. I've already started it. Yeah. Cut to... Oh, that's my- you. Okay. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Although yesterday, this leads us into everything that's going on in the world right now. Uh, last night was the first night of the DNC. I think, I don't know how you guys felt, but I was a little concerned that the live stream might lose a little bit of the oomph right? And in fact, I guess my quick review of it was it was fucking fire. And two, it was so fucking well produced and like such a crystal clear message that I was dumbfounded. And as theater people, I was so amazed at the pacing, right? Mm -hmm. It was like the America I want to see. Just people of color and women and all the demographics and gay and straight and trans. It was amazing, I thought. And Eva Longoria, good morning class, my Mexican sister, just being like, hi, I'm Eva Longoria and you're not. And we have to turn this shit around. I want her to play my mom in a TV show like so badly. Like I've written a, a pilot and I have her in mind to play my mom and have her produce it. <laughs> I love I love Eva Longoria. Like she is such a queen. She's such a queen and she's also such a badass mm-hmm. of an activist because it she to me is an unsuspecting activist. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the way that she really reps for generational Mexicans mm-hmm. is is amazing because Frankly, we didn't really have someone that in the public eye, uh, that famous, to rep for us. Right. And and also the fact that she's just not having it. You know, like her whole quote about Texas that I guess I'll say, I, I'll, I'll find it and read it eventually, just blew my mind. Do you know what I mean? About, you know, she's like, no, we've always been here. 
Like, yeah. you know, but, and so it, I just thought it was such a smart thing to do to have this strong, intelligent force of nature, Mexican American woman be the person running the shit as the host of the DNC. It is brilliant. She's one of the board members of the Me Too movement. And she's also in charge of a lot of things to help with the Latin vote, which I'm failing at mm-hmm. right now with my notes. The we were it was emotional. We were having a good time, but more so over the I didn't realize that the eleven o'clock number literally <laughs> was gonna be the Queen Michelle Obama giving a eighteen ish minute keynote address that I was bathed in tears and obviously thought that it would be smart to film 60 seconds of that on TikTok because I lost my mind. Um, <laughs> I I don't, okay, so I'll say this and I'd love to hear what you, you gentlemen think. I haven't felt that genuine level of hope in a very long time. Mm-hmm. And where I was amazed is we are in the showbiz. We know that all of it is produced. I mean, people are fucking ridiculous. They're like, this is so rehearsed. I'm like, did you, because unlike the current administration, we're just going to come out and stutter. <laughs> yeah, it's rehearsed. It's called being a professional. It's called being of service to the public. So you're not wasting people's time with figuring it out on the spot. That's what we do when we talk in front of people. So I was just so moved by her authenticity and candor and such a mix of facts, truth, and genuine, genuine earnestness. Well, I personally think Michelle Obama has like always been the closer when it comes to her speech-giving abilities. Yeah. She has this amazing, amazing mix of like real facts and like real supportive statements that she can back up mixed with her own personal opinion and experience. And she, she pulls no punches. Yes. She, she tells it like it is. And what that speech really projected was this honest, earnest, confident plea for action that what, what is happening right now needs us to stand up, I think her quote was, in numbers that can't be ignored, Mm -hmm. right? That we need to vote and we need to get out there and we need to, what was it, pack a a dinner and maybe breakfast the next day and we need to be in the lines for as long as it takes because that's what our country needs right now. And I think it was the perfect closer to a... DNC first night that projected in a really crystal clear way mm-hmm. hope and confidence. Yes. Yeah, I didn't get to watch it unfortunately, um but I watched a couple of the highlights and I can't wait to watch the entire thing tonight. Um but I feel very similar to you that like even just listening to the little bits that I did of Michelle Obama and Bernie Sanders just made me feel like there was actual hope and that there was something to do. And it was, it, 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 it was listening to mama bear be like, yo, we have to do something about this. Do you, do you understand? We can't take enough. It was like from hearing from your mother being like, are you going to learn this lesson? 
because we have to learn this lesson right now. It was really cool. It's really inspiring. And I, I just can't wait to watch the whole thing. I mean, she 100%. And I have to say, even the way that she gave that speech, because we know for a fact that because people are fucking human, that shit's on a teleprompter, mm-hmm. of course. Even on a technical precision level of the way that you can tell she dotted all of her I's and crossed her T's with the produ- producing team, the way that however she was reading her speech, she was looking directly into our eyes. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. tell that that was a meticulous detail that that was paramount to what she was trying to accomplish with the message. And I thought it was just meticulously executed, which those details say so much about one's, uh, just say, those details just say so much about one's character and intention, right? Mm, right. It's it's the exact same thing we all do as, as uh, directors and performers. We set up these very intentional technical parameters in order to manifest authenticity, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. That, it's that interesting thing where we're, creating a world that is totally fabricated the circumstance is fabricated but the end result is authentic and real and that's what i was so impressed with the way they set up that speech it's a fabricated thing you have lights you have cameras you have people you have hair and makeup and then you know lights on and it was it was incredible and i think what's so special about her is that unlike, and this isn't a criticism because speeches are hard, unlike mm-hmm. probably I think a lot of people who work around her, and this is just my impression, I could be wrong, but I, I have a feeling, because we've heard her write in her own voice. You can tell how heavy her hand is in her speech. Like yeah. it's it's her authentic voice. And she said shit that, she's like, I know some of this will fall on deaf ears and I'm, I'm misquoting her, but you know, I'm a black woman. You know, and took a pause to be like, I know some of you aren't going to like me just based on my race. And then that dig, it actually, it wasn't a dig because it it wasn't a dig. It was a fact when she literally just said that 45 is just not up to this job. And in a lot of ways, kind of plain, I think, to maybe some of the Republicans who know that, who actually probably like her, because what human being that doesn't have a modicum of empathy a sense of a good person not enjoy someone like Michelle Obama telling these people yo like he's he's bad at this and then it is what it is damn and i mean to respond to the criticism that it can feel overly rehearsed to that i would say don't you want your politicians to be intentional with their word don't you want the people speaking to you about the problems that face the country? Wouldn't you rather that, that they take the time to show you that they care about what they're saying to you, that they craft a message that gives you the right information? I, I, the, we put a lot of emphasis on this kind of like gut reaction authenticity, right? When in reality, it's like she said in the speech, the job is hard. The Mm -hmm. job of being president is hard. You want someone that brings that level of focus, that level of intentionality. And yes, that rehearsal to the job. I mean, the the thing that really uh, 
the really got me near the end of the speech was when she said that, you know, we're all still compassionate, like decent people. Yes. And it's time for our leaders to reflect that truth. It is really something that I've been feeling more and more recently is that our country is getting more and more divided, but I do believe at its core, it is still filled with good, decent people. Yes. And it's time, you know, we keep saying, they keep saying that like this election is for the soul of America. Right. Yeah. And it, it, that feels like such a heavy way of saying that, aren't we all still good, decent people? Shouldn't we have leaders that reflect that? Shouldn't we be taking this time to reclaim that image for America? And it could not have been any clearer when she just laid it out with a pause. Mm. Empathy. Yep. Empathy. And we talked about this, I think, in maybe the last couple episodes where I was talking about often when people in, in like real humans are these sort of villainous characters, I use my director mind to unpack like, what is this character's journey? Like, what is their end game? And I think I express that my terror in the current administration comes from the fact that I can't find any empathy in their character. I felt so vindicated hearing that because if I'm thinking that, like you had said before, Cheech, millions of people are thinking that. You know, we're a collective consciousness. I, I don't think people inherently are terrible. I think we're filled with character defects. You know, we're just p- humans. If we weren't, then it wouldn't actually be very interesting. Um, yeah. Sondheim wouldn't have a career. <laughs> See what I did there? See? I do. I do. It's a theater podcast. But what I really what I really loved about what Michelle Obama said about empathy, empathy was the fact that it's more than just emotion-based. It's also about how you react and what you do to it, like do with that empathy. And I think that that's the biggest part that we kind of have forgotten right now during the coronavirus while we're all by ourselves is that we can like feel it emotionally and like our mental health, but like, what is the actual call to action and what is the response? I I thought that that was really interesting and really well put. Yeah. It it shows, you know, her whole message of when they go low, we go high is not a passive argument. It's like, it's going high is a very active thing. Let's be real. We are right now a very world weary if that's the right expression, group of Democrats. And I think it's fair to say that our trust is low on a certain level. I think everyone's just deeply, deeply disappointed. And so you can tell it was a way for her to address the criticism of, oh, are you going to just be passive now, Michelle? Like, how dare you? And it's Michelle Obama, first and last, if not queen. (laughs) I feel like she's the, I I feel like she's someone that I would be so nervous to meet just because I respect her so much. There are very few people in the world that could make me feel that nervous. It's her and Hillary Clinton. And that's probably, and probably Elizabeth Warren. On a side note, let me tell you boys, young Aaron, when I was your age, I (laughs) slammed into Hillary Clinton coming out of the back entrance of the Russian tea room. So real quick, guys, uh, Uncle Aaron's going to tell you a story. Ready? I know you guys love my tangents. Um, Cut to half of your fans being like, did he put timestamps in this one yet? Shit. Um, So (laughs) I was, my friend was working at Kaplan, the testing center, I think. And we were just going to go get some lunch. So we're walking. I'm not paying any attention because, you know, we're in our 20s and we're like, and all of a sudden, I 
I turn with just enough cognizant awareness to feel a bump and then a hand that was like the size of five of my hands grabbing my shoulder and forcefully but not violently pushing me back and I went and I looked and me and Hillary Clinton were eye to eye her eyes were really big because I just slammed into her and she's a very important human being so you never know what that means right and then she obviously saw this 20-ish something year old theater kid mortified and then she looked at the secret service guy she goes just shook her head and they were like "Mm." And they kept going. And I was like, (laughs) great. I almost knocked down Hillary Clinton. Anyway, so that was my, uh, I fucked up. I wonder if she remembers. I don't, I mean, well, I bet, I don't know. Can you imagine? Well, actually, I bet her Secret Service was just like, that can never happen again. How did a six foot man slam into the former first lady? Yeah, anyway, going back to Michelle Obama being terrified, not terrified, respecting her so much i'd be nervous to meet her um exactly the the fact that she addressed her her critics by saying that going high is not a passive thing and also not to just turn the other cheek that's not what this is about right and in in many ways what i thought was so amazing is the way that she laid out that this is going to be rough it's going to be a rough 70-ish days Let's talk about just for a second uncle bernie sanders let me let me start this by saying, like, I was <laughs> never on I was never on the feel the burn bandwagon. Like no. That, no. I was not I I feel like I'm a rare part of Gen Z that was like not for Uncle Bernie. I, I like him. Yeah. Like, I like him. I think he has interesting political ideas. He was not who I wanted to be our leader, right? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. But I respect the level of candor that he brings to every single speech that he makes. He never pulls a punch. And I I mean, if you want to talk about like the liberal version of like, well, he always speaks his mind. Like that is, that is Bernie Sanders, right? Yes. Always says what is, what is on his mind. And I adored the fact that right at the beginning of his speech, he goes, We, for the millions of people that joined my campaign and supported my campaign, I thank you, but all of the progress that we have made is in jeopardy if you do not vote for Biden, right at the beginning of his speech. In no uncertain terms. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I think that, was it Globuchar that was like, it's not about, it's not about settling? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Or or she said she was like, this this election is not about settling for Biden. And I left that the first night of the DNC yesterday and I thought, like, you know what? Like, I, I don't know why up to this point I have thought of myself like voting for a candidate that I wasn't passionate about. But in reality, like I I, I could be and should be very passionate about my support for Biden's presidency right now. Absolutely. That is is what our, that is what our country needs. Our country needs people to be like, yo, vote for Biden. And like this whole idea of like voting for Biden isn't sexy, but it is what is necessary. Like we kind of have to like 
We have to get over it. We have to get over it. We have to get over ourselves because the truth of the matter is, is that he is, yes, a little more conservative than we would like our liberal president to be and president to be. And yes, he is not perfect, but yes, he will be a good president. I do think that, especially after all of the extremely vocal, detailed support from politicians and civic leaders that I respect and admire from yesterday. And to have, you know, the cool Uncle Bernie go, vote for him, do it. This is, this is, you want the progress? This is the way to that progress. I mean, that is what our... That that is what the DNC needed yesterday. Absolutely, and I 100% echo your sentiments because you know I was saying one of my favorite Instagrams is to settle for Biden, and I have to say I feel a little bad about that. I do think it's a smart thing to put out there because it tends to be for kind of Gen Zers and younger and people who are just turning 18. So it's smart, right? But yeah, that's exactly what I felt after last night. All these endorsements that didn't feel like. Let's back up the the blue party just because we have to. People were being exactly such detailed receipts about this life of service. And also the fact that this man, which I'm not saying this qualifies you, but as a human being who has been through some really trying loss, really trying times of loss uh, with his own family, which is that that does build character in a human being. We all know that. I, you know, it's a terrible thing to say because I don't think you have to be miserable to be an artist. But the things that happen to us that are life-changing only inform us as artists. And I can only imagine that informs you as a politician and a person who's in public service. Mm-hmm. I actually saw Joe Biden by default when I was working a gig. I remember actually in that moment watching him and we all were mesmerized. We were like, oh, Joe Biden. He's not this kind of like bumbly uncle. He's really this mesmerizing presence in person, I have to say, and very warm and unpretentious, like everyone was saying. Now, I didn't get to shake his hand, but, you know, when you're 300 feet away from someone, you can pick up on their energy. I don't care what anyone says, right? It's like we we see it on stage. You can pick up on it. Like, how often do you go see a play? And especially, let's be real, us or a musical, whatever, who cares? Something, right? Oh, I miss theater so much. Anyway, and you get the feeling, you're like, I met that person's kind of not nice. And then it gets confirmed. It's like you can feel it even through their character. Like you can feel people's energy. And I think it was a really wonderful testament to play to the sentiment of this is a completely qualified person and he's not perfect, but no one's perfect. No one's perfect. And I have to say, I walked away with this. I don't know how you boys felt uh, about all of it. Realizing I don't want to be like the opposition. I think the way to lead through this really negative energy is to have a ferocious sense of empathy. One of my favorite astrologers, uh, <laughs> which is funny because I'm not necessarily into astrology, but I just think he's he's great. He, he used to be the astrologer for the Village Voice, so it's very near and dear to my heart. He has this notion of like rowdy bliss where you're, you know, where it's like, it's an active, rowdy sort of like bliss and peace, but that doesn't mean you're like a pacifist on any level. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel like the the Democratic Party is trying to say to everyone is, we're not passive, we're not laying down to die, we're saving our lives, and we do have a legitimately qualified group of people who are in service, despite their lack of perfection and the 
obvious things that we need to demand of them to adjust when they get in office, but these are qualified human beings. Yeah, and in the last week, I think at least I can feel this really, really palpable shift from the Biden campaign. Like there up to this point, it it felt a little bit like, you know, weekend at Biden's where he like threw on some sunglasses and was like in the bunker yeah, and like was letting Trump shoot himself in the foot. Right. Letting, yep. letting, mm-hmm. Trump shoot himself in the foot. but in this last week, I think starting with the announcement that Kamala Harris is going to be his VP from that point forward, it's like there is this magnetic shift forward. Yes. Where the the Biden-Harris campaign has been active, has been out there, has projected this idea that we are ready to take on this presidency. Yes. And in a, in a strange way, has become like kind of sexy. Like it's been like, yeah. Yeah. it's been kind of awesome and, in, and empowering to like watch that shift move forward, especially in these last, you know, what, 80 days or something. Like it is really, really lovely to see this energy moving forward to empower people like like myself, people like myself who are like, yeah, well, I guess I'll vote for Biden now because it's the right thing to do to go. No, I'm going to vote for Biden Harris because that is the right ticket for what we need right now. Absolutely. And that's a wonderful segue into a historical moment in fucking history. Kamala Harris. Oh my God. It's truly the coolest. Cue the fanfare. Oh my God. It's huge. It's massive. Massive. I, I, and I, yes. And I, I, I know that I sound like I do this all the time, but I fucking cried when they did their first public speech together. How fucking amazing. I mean, it's amazing. I let's, let's hang out in this pool of amazing. It's amazing. And I'm not going to say that we conjured it, but I think we conjured it. <laughs> it's true. I thought about you boys. I mean, you guys saw I instantly was like, yeah, it's like, uh, it's, it's such an incredible, it's so incredible. And I don't even want to qualify it with the detractors and the people who instantly wanted to shit on it. And tragically too, other, <sighs> we're never going to get ahead if we keep pulling down our own and feed into the fire of white people needing needing an excuse to think that other non-white people don't want brown and black people to fucking succeed. It has to stop. Now, who the fuck am I? Fine. But it just has to stop. Like, if we're going to talk shit, then let's talk shit amongst ourselves. But let's not post about it and add fuel to the flame, because you're just getting some maybe even middle ground non-white person being like, I mean, yeah. I mean, look, all these non-white people agree. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's been my biggest thing uh, about uh, social media is that there are so many people like I hate, I hate. I'm just like, why the people posting? You know, you know, they're not perfect, but I'm gonna vote them. It's like, no, just say that you're gonna vote for them. Like, fuck off. Like, don't don't do that. Don't don't put a negative thing on it. Yeah, like, yes, okay, sure. We can all be thinking out loud, like they were not our first choice, whatever, but like to post it on social media with people that are like-minded than, than like you, you know, is very similar to what Cheech said. It's like the moment that you see someone like thinks exactly the same. So it's just like, don't just put that, uh, don't put that out there. Like just be, just be excited about it and say, I'm voting for this person. That's all you got to do. 
I mean, it's it's really true. And I know it's hard to say because obviously I have my thoughts as well, but it's not the point right now. We'll unpack all that shit afterwards. Exactly. But let's talk about this. So she is a woman, which is amazing. Fucking for fuck's sake. I mean, like it we it just it's it is a disgrace that there's never been a woman in office. She is a black woman, she is a South Asian woman. And she is someone who has had a life of service. But more so over, let's let's unpack that. Cheech, how are you feeling? I mean, the first thing I did was text my mother and tell her that like I could not believe that I got to vote for an Indian American woman. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just, it blew my mind. I was so excited. My family was so excited. Um, and... I think the thing that really touched me that day is that I I think about like the young children, right? Like the young black children, the young brown children who who for them, this is like the first big political thing that they will remember. Yes. Like the first really positive political thing that will stick in their minds is Kamala Harris. And that, I mean, the heart just swells at the idea of that. Absolutely. Um, I think she is, I think she's a great, great choice. I think she is really qualified. She has led a real life. She is the mm-hmm. daughter of immigrants. She is biracial in two marginalized communities, but does mm-hmm. not let that define her existence. She's been very vocal about the fact that she she considers herself an American first and foremost. I mean, it. I I cannot, I don't have the words to put in, in, I don't have the words to say just how excited I am about this choice. It is, it is the right choice for us as a country, but also it is the right choice for the Biden-Harris ticket. Yes. Like it is, it is absolutely 100% the correct move for Joe Biden to go, not, not only am I going to take a female VP, I'm going to take a, a female VP of color. And on top of that, she is going to be excessively qualified for the position. She is going to be, be the daughter of immigrants. She's going to be raised by a single mother. She is going to be, she's going to have led a life of service working for the people all the way up to this point. And you loved her before I added her onto this ticket. It it, it just, it brings a, it, it brings a whole new approach to, to his campaign. It's a whole new race now. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, just having this VP nom, like having this on his ticket, she's a reflection of what our country looks like. She is the, literally mm-hmm. the reflection of what our country looks like. And so it's just, it's, it, yeah, it is. I enjoyed her when she was running for president and I'm excited to hear her speak some more. Again, I said this last week, I 
have really enjoyed watching her speeches and watching her do some of these interviews about how much she's evolved and how much she is willing to learn. It, that That is what excites me the most about having her on this ticket. It's the, the fact that they can work in tandem in that capacity just is, it's going to, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be. And, and, and both of them, both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been incredibly vocal about their desire to learn and grow. their desire to adapt and change and to listen to the American public. And how incredibly refreshing is that after four years of our literal marches and protests and pleas for justice just falling on deaf ears? How wonderful is it that we have two people at the head of this party going, when we get into office, we will listen to you. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. I was looking back on some of her, more of her promotional work that she was doing when she was campaigning for president that was a little more in the vein of like pop culture people. So, you know, she's being a little more earthy and uh, not earthy, but she's just being, they showing her her candid side, the fact that she's actually like a human being, not yeah, just we talk, we talk in doses with Mindy Kaling, that video. Yes, all of that. Well, that, no. And then there was something, yes, 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 yes. And then there was something else, though, where, uh, they asked her about um, the legalization of marijuana. And she said, she didn't stutter. She goes, you know, I've gone through many different phases of this, but I'm realizing now it just needs to be legalized in total. And it's one of those things that's almost, not almost, it's one of, that's a very, for someone who is the district attorney, to realize that the greater harm that's done by small-time criminals being incarcerated for fucking marijuana? Are you fucking kidding me? Is is so detrimental to so many marginalized communities that for a woman of her stature politically, uh, for, for a woman of her stature to say that she realizes it just needs to be legalized, I'm not saying that in some way that's like, you know, I actually, I don't even smoke pot anymore. So let me qualify with that. I'm not saying, oh, great, the stoners win. That's a huge shift in the thought process of justice. Well, and the thing that I love that what she said about that in that quote is she said that it, they phrased it in a way is like, how did your mind change about the legalization of marijuana? And what she said so clearly and so bluntly is, no. My mind has not changed. My mind has evolved. And I thought that yeah. that was so important for her to say is that there, there is an evolution in all of us. We're all learning. We can all think differently. And it's just about like, oh, it's not like I was convinced. It's like she, she had to come around and like understand the science behind it. And that's exactly what she said. She was like, there's so much science proving how like beneficial this plant is. Like it, it's, yeah. Exactly. There is all of the things that we're learning about it in terms of the way it can actually help people, but it's also just a foolish thing for people. Europe has already figured it out. When in 1999, when I got my first show, I was in Switzerland on a on a Euro tour. You know, those just exist. And the town of Basel, it wasn't like Amsterdam, but it was called Tolerated. But ostensibly, that means legal. So there were just shops, and you just went and got it. And there was sort of a I, I didn't know the semantics of it because I was 20, but there was like a respectful 
policy that when you were out in public, you didn't behave badly and that you weren't just like openly smoking bowls in public, that you respectfully partook in it. So then we would always notice as the Americans that everyone rolled theirs with tobacco and it was out of like a sense of public interest and not sort of like slapping a privilege in the face of the their local government. Anyway, but I remember thinking like how fascinating it was because it was just a non-issue. It was just available and it it was just, that's just what it was. And it wasn't like people were running around being ridiculous. And I just found that to be, and that was in 1999, 1999. So it clearly works. You know, it's like when you tell a kid, don't do something, they're going to do it, right? And I, I just think, and I, I don't I didn't realize I had any passion about this, but it, the people it's harming is mortifying. And we need to be focused on a lot of other things. Look at all the things people are getting away with that aren't getting arrested. You're going to arrest some kid who's just trying to like survive. And I'm not saying that that's the right way to go about it. But maybe if we remove that as an option to survive and create more things to stimulate the economy and education, we can nip that shit in the bud. And I, I have a feeling that I don't, no one's going to solve anything in four years. But I think that this seems like the purpose of what the Biden-Harris ticket is about, is about the evolution of healing from the ground up for the country. Yeah, it's just all so exciting. I, yeah, it, it really is. And, and, and I'm, I'm very hesitant on it solely for the fact that, like, this is how we felt with, you know, Hillary. Like, we felt this, like, oh, this is cool. This is exciting. Wow. Like, we all... We're so thrilled by it. So now it's about making sure that we are taking the action with everything going on with the postal service. It's just like, it means more than ever that we have to be registered to vote, that we have to be prepared to advocate to register to vote, that we need to speak and make sure that we can help people register to vote. Like it's just, it, it, it has become a huge thing to make sure that we can be excited about these candidates. But if we cannot actually physically vote or mail in our ballots, what do we do? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And before we talk about that shit show, I think the reason why it also feels a little different in a more urgent... Well, anyway, the thing was too, just to be clear, we got complacent during the Obama administration because we felt safe. And we all were like, oh, everything's fine. You know, like, we're cool. There's a black man in office. He mentioned gay people in his inauguration speech. Made me cry. I cry a lot when I get moved. Same. So far, so good. Michelle Obama's the first, the first lady. What's the problem? So let's just get Hillary and keep going. And I think that complacency led to where we are now. So speaking of non-complacency, exactly what Danny's saying is the shit show going on with the Postal Service. So, you know, there's a person in office who's a adamant supporter of the current administration, who's now the head postmaster. There's all these things being said of like, no, 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 this is normal. Yeah, because we've always seen trucks come and scoop up fucking post office boxes. Now, granted, there was a New York Times article that came out that did show that there were ones that were genuinely being switched out in New York to better security. So maybe, actually, let's put some hope out there. Let's, Let's not be such fucking negative Nancys. Maybe a percentage of some of that switching out is a legitimate safety thing. But I don't think that's all of it. I think it's a perfect storm to be like, well, we had to switch those out. So what if the guys 
is we replace some of these, but then ultimately take a bunch away. Yeah, you know? and no, then- I'm a pissed patty. I'm done with it. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so I'm so fucking mad about this bullshit. I don't, I don't, I, I think that that is such a crop of shit for them to try to do. If they were, if that is what they're trying to do, I think that that's such shit. And I jokingly tweeted, I said, so does this mean that my rent check just doesn't exist anymore? Cause bye, like Girl. can't find a post, like a, a mailbox anywhere. Like where, where am I supposed to send that? One million. <laughs> exactly. Bye. Exactly. I guess rent got canceled. I don't know what it is, but seeing the receipts of what's happening with that in the physical manifestation of us seeing post office boxes being physically taken, dismantled off the street is almost more than I can bear. So I'm trying to just keep my head above water. Yeah, to me, it feels a little bit like if you've ever played a game with a toddler, like an imaginary game with a toddler, and they make up the rules as they're going. Oh my God. And so, like, you start to win the game because you're just, you know, an old person and more capable than the toddler. And then they go, no, 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 wait. And also, this, you have to do this before you can do this. Like, it just feels like at every stage, the Trump administration has been like, wait, 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 no, 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 you can't do that. You have to do this other thing for like, it's just, and the, the fact that people still think that voter suppression is like this conspiracy theory concocted by the liberal media. I'm like, you guys have to get over yourselves. Like really, truly, I mean this with all the love in the world, you have to get over it and realize that voter suppression has existed since before the invention of the liberal media as we know it today. Oh my God, absolutely. Yes. And like our system was built rigged. So like you, you gotta know that that's the, that, Ever since we've had a fair and free election, we've had quotation marks around fair and free. Yes. yes. Oh, Say it again yes. for the back row, honey. Hello. And again, I will say this uh, uh, every single day for the rest of my life. Wow. Defund the police is so difficult and impossible to do, but defund the United States Postal Service yeah. is a walk in the park. Like, fuck off. Are you joking me? It, it's, it is fucking atrocious. Unfucking believable. And what I have to say, I'm man, I'm getting pissed about this. I'm having a harder time, and I'm just gonna express this and and maybe some of you listening can can relate. I'm having a harder time from the passivity of like people who aren't saying what they're gonna do who are in my life. Right now, silence is deafening in this situation. Like if I send you something and there's silence. It really fucking concerns me. And this also isn't a thing where it's like, oh, you know, this is because I'm I'm gay that I want someone who... No, that's not what this is about at all. And on top of that shit, I'm just going to say this shit out loud. It is none of my business what a woman does with her body. So I have no opinion to talk about about abortions at all. None. I have no opinion. It's not my business. I have I have nothing to say about that. What I will say, though, is these motherfuckers who are like, I'm pro-life. I'm like, oh, but you're also like cool with like ICE detention centers. You're cool with 160K plus deaths. You're cool with the violence happening during peaceful protests because you are pro-life only when it matters to your agenda. But like when it comes to kids in cages and, and hundreds of thousands of families being decimated 
spiritually and physically, that doesn't mean shit to you. Fuck off with your self-righteousness. Do you, you know, if you believe in a God that believes in that, then that, that there's something bigger to question there. And I will say this as, as a former person who I still have a lot of love for Jesus, not in the way people think of him now. Th- this, this is not the point. Like anyone who believes, it's just, it's dumbfounding to me what people have done to corrupt and turn this really interesting thought and, and theory of how to live your life spiritually into this insidious, uh, just fucking monster of hatred and death. Like in what verse does that seem like that's happening to you? I, I, I don't know. That's, that's just my, I just got really heated about that shit, but that's that's how I feel about that. I'm so fucking over it. I'm over it. Which, you know, might be me lacking empathy. <laughs> yeah, it's been really interesting on social media too when it comes to all of that too because there I've gotten so often like unfollowed or unfriended about stuff because I'm posting too much about like my outrage and like being like, hi, I'm not taking this anymore. Like I, I, I'm not going to allow you to have these, you know, underlining racial things being brought out political things or whatever. And it's like, I'm being too much, but you're like, f- like your weird faux patriotic propaganda is like, not okay with your copy and paste fucking bullshit chains. Like shut up. Here's kind of how I feel about it. Right. Plain and simple is that we should be talking about it more. Right. Mm-hmm. Because unless we are talking about it, it feels like a big, heavy discussion to have. Yeah. Like, un- unless we talk more about the issues that matter to us, those issues become like these, these other, other level, like heavy, un- untouchable, kind of unapproachable issues, right? They have this giant stigma surrounding them. We need to be able to talk about them in a real way, in a way that uh, allows us to listen to the other person and have a real conversation about it. Because unless we practice doing that, unless we practice the ability to converse about the issues that matter to us, we are never going to get to the place where people care about them. Amen. And with that too, for all of the fury I feel about that, I think what's frustrating to me is I don't think bringing it all full circle for this first half of this this the the show i don't think that even the people who are allowing themselves to be complacent are necessarily terrible people in their core and to be honest i'm only realizing this in this moment i wonder if that's where half of our fury comes from because we just want to shake a person and be like i know that you are not a fucking awful person it's almost like invasions of the body snatchers. And there's definitely some psychology, but I'm sure we'll look back on this 20, 30 years from now, and they'll be able to talk about sort of what's happened to the country during this time period. But it, I think that's where the frustration comes from. It's almost like you get really angry with people you love, you know, because you know there's something there. And inherently, as, as people who, all of us on, on this panel, let's call it what it is, we really do believe that people ultimately at their heart are inherently kind and just trying to be good. That's where the frustration lies. That's where it lies. 
because I know most people aren't bad people. I know that people in our circles of families and extended families aren't bad people. And I just don't know what it's going to take to wake them up. But like that one, fuck, I forget his name from Texas, said, we are the Calvary. We are the Calvary. I was, it's us. Here it is. We have to do it. So until everyone else kind of wakes up from this dream, we've got to bring a new wave in and show them that there's a better way this can be done, right? And with that, I think it's a perfect time, gentlemen, to take a little moment to breathe (laughs) and recalibrate. So everyone, if you haven't yet, get cozy. We're going to take a little breather and uh, meditate. All right, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Aaron, your host and producer of the show. So there's a lot happening right now in the world. And rather than take a moment to have a commercial, I thought it would be nice for us to take a moment and recalibrate. How does that sound? Excellent. Okay, so get comfortable, and we're going to take a deep breath in, and a deep breath out. Deep breath in, and just let it out. All right. Now close your eyes, and breathe. Normally. Perfect. I hope you feel a little better now. And just remember, you are perfect. And you are loved. Okay. Let's get back to the show. everyone let's take a little breather after all that fire and passion so uh continuing down the path of things that we have really intense opinions about <laughs> there's been a lot of uh 
harumphy laka laka lakaness uh, going on. That's the official word of it, laka laka laka, of people leaving New York, which I have total empathy for, uh, and going back to empathy, because it, it's a hard place to live, man. It's really difficult, and it's difficult on your best day. So I certainly understand that some people, especially with families and whatnot, are leaving actors feeling disenfranchised as in a disenfranchised industry. <laughs> so the thing though that's been coming up is a lot of people are talking a lot of shit as they leave the house. And that seems to be what is now officially pissing everyone off. And a particular person posted a article, a self-published article called NYC is dead forever. And here's why something like that. I shouldn't be promoting it and created a laundry list of lists, lists and charts of why that is. And it obviously set off a lot of reactions. So as three boys who are in New York and Cheech is back in New York, yes, looking like a million bucks. Uh, we're all going to have to do a socially distant bike ride, I promise. Okay, so that's my favorite thing. Um, we have some thoughts. Danny, what, so what has been your take on this? Because you're, you know, you're deep in it, and I'm sure your feed has been mm. sadly filled with people leaving and reacting in different ways. So the thing that's really scary about this whole thing is watching everybody pack up and leave and be like, who knows if we're coming back? I've seen so many people move to LA, which I'm like, why are you, why are you moving to LA? It's the exact same situation. It's getting worse. What are you doing? But just reaction. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's been really sad. It was really sad to me for a while. And then I started to watch our community really band together and be like, and support one another. And, you know, really actually stick up for the homelessness crisis that we're having right now in the city and being like, Hey, people of privilege who are living in these like mostly rich white neighborhoods, like stop complaining about the homeless like the homeless people that are on the street, you guys are taking up entire blocks of restaurants and you're eating fine. Like stop complaining about little trash things that are happening. But um, as far as that article, you must be a really sad person to have to spend time compiling an entire list of why New York City is dead. It's not. New York is still alive. We still, we're still here. We're still working really hard to bring our city back. And truthfully, if you think New York City is dead, you are never a real New York New Yorker. I just, I, I firmly believe that. If you do not believe in our city that much, if you can't see how spectacular our city is, even within a crisis, and how much we come mm -hmm. together, you are never a real part of it. I agree, and even even though this person is a fourth generation New Yorker, that to me even was more disappointment. But I'm that was the catalyst. But exactly, I'm I'm talking more about the people who moved here and claimed to love it until they didn't love it, which is fair. Um, One of the Real Housewives posted on their Instagram, and I thought it was so disgusting. Uh, she was talking about how somebody had their pants down to their butt, and she was just like, "This isn't the New York City I know," and I'm like. Bitch, you're on the Upper East Side. Calm the fuck down. It's always been in our city. You've just never been downtown. Peace. And on that note, Danny Marin's running away just for the second half of this to go be a really responsible producer and to make sure that his set is COVID-free. We've never done this. We're going to play a little music as you bounce. I so, love you, boys. I love you. <laughs> I only have one more episode. I can't take it. Okay, we we're have, not going to do this right now. We have a little bit more of this episode. We left. need to have a finale party. That's what we really need to do. We do need to have a finale party. <laughs> oh, that's something to think about. Okay, kids. Okay. Tune in. Finale party. Okay. Thank you. Bye, bye. honey. 
How do I leave this session? Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> oh my God. That was like the end of an awkward grinder hookup. Okay, bye. <laughs> I gotta go. I just had a really like... It's like, really... do you want to get food or... You know what? Yeah. No, no, I really don't because gay boys are... Ugh. You know what though? Honestly, just to go off topic, I don't know if it's gay guys We because we can only relate to who we are. I just think that dating in general is awkward and and hookup culture is awkward when you're in cities uh not that to discount anyone that's not in a city because i'm sure people are everywhere so i'm realizing that now i'm like well gay boys i think the thing with men is that people forget oh you're gay yeah but we're still guys and men inherently are a little i'll say it we're a little emotionally closed off closed off yeah and there's a lot to unpack there in a bonus episode um but then you come to new york city and you meet a bunch of other people who are emotionally closed off and you're like let's be friends um (laughs) 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 and then you're just normalized and you're like oh yeah so i'm totally normal like this is just this dysfunction is actually it's cool i'm an adult uh oh i'm curious about your point of view on this though cheech um and I know, and I want to be sensitive to this, and I could even cut this out about like how you're feeling about it because you're someone who has had the journey of a very small percentage of people get to accomplish what you've accomplished. You know, it's a very small circle. And I wonder how that has been making you feel in terms of your love for the city as the relationship you have with it as a whole. Interesting. Yeah. This might be a bit of a controversial statement, but I (laughs) feel like you can't love New York unless you hate New York a little bit. Yes. You know, like unless you are walking back from a grocery store with like six shopping bags and you're, you're just like, oh my God, if I were anywhere else, I would have a car and a Costco membership. Like, unless you've experienced that, unless you've experienced like a crowded, disgusting subway train, unless you've experienced the, the like, like uh, unless you've experienced like looking for an apartment and being like, oh my gosh, if I were anywhere else, I could get a full house for this. Like, yeah. Unless you have experienced that kind of disgust, the real love for New York can't exist. For me, they've kind of always gone hand in hand. I had a I had a, a tough time like adjusting to the city. And not because I wasn't um like braced for it. Syracuse does this incredible thing where during the last semester of your theater training, they move all of the second semester seniors to New York City. And wow. you take classes while you're still a student. Wow. So that by the time you graduate, you are set up with an apartment. Um, you've gone to a couple auditions, like you've you've made some connections and you're here with your entire graduating class. It's an incredible program. And so it, wow. the, the transition is as smooth as it can be. And yet it is really, really difficult. Oh, yeah. Because... Everything in New York is just like a little bit different. And a lot of things in New York are just a lot bit worse, you know? Yeah. But the thing that has stuck out to me 
since the very beginning and that will always stick out to me and is the reason why I feel such a deep, deep loyalty to this city is that it's kind of that law of numbers thing. Every other New Yorker has gone through what you're going through. Mm -hmm. If you are on the subway and you burst into tears, there will be someone that hands you a Kleenex because every other person in New York has burst into tears on the subway. Yes. Like there is a reason why we help people like pull their strollers upstairs and a reason why we hold doors open for people and a reason why we, we reach out to each other. It's because we have all experienced this thing that no one else has experienced. And so when I read an article that is titled New York City is Dead Forever, I feel this kind of surprise because I'm not dead. Mm-hmm. The the people that I the people that have cared for me in those situations, you know, the spirit of them is not dead. The real truth of the matter is that New Yorkers band together in a way that overcomes any cynicism you can have towards the city. That is beautifully said and and really well articulated. And I, I'm so happy to hear you say that. How, how long have you been in the city now? Three years, a little over. Three years. It's, well, that's, you know, it's interesting you well, say I that. Actually, I, guess, I guess three and a half now because quarantine... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Three and a half. Well, it's, I, you know, that makes sense. And I'm so happy that at three years that sentiment happens because I, I moved here in 1999. I'm hitting, I'm turning 21 this month. I can't believe it. It's crazy. You know, I was actually thinking of this today, you know, because I had this moment where I was like, oh, do I, you know, it's not the time to throw a party. And I've never really been a party guy. Even on my birthday, I'm always like, I just kind of want some donuts and to like walk around. Like I don't really want to do anything. Um, I really am. Like something happened in like in my late thirties, and I just like to be small. I'm very happy to be alive. Uh, But going back to, I was coming back from the grocery store this morning, and I was thinking a lot about turning 21. I posted it on Facebook that I turned 21 this month, kind of in response to what's happening and everyone leaving. And I had a moment. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to. I'll be allow myself to be vulnerable. Um, <laughs> uh, to all of you people listening, I, I was like 21 and I was like, well, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Then I had this, the darkest, the dark moment. I'm like, oh fuck. Well, all your gigs are gone and you're blah, blah, blah. And I started like doing that weird stockpiling of like this saboteur as RuPaul mm-hmm. likes to talk about. And then all of a sudden I had the second flip of it and I'm like, you just left Whole Foods. You're walking up to your one bedroom in East Midtown about to record a podcast. And after that, set up a meeting with your creative team for the company that you've had for the last five years. I'm fine. Like, this is actually kind of what I wanted my life to be. And I, we, you can't let this thing that we have no control over rob you of your joy. I won't say you can't. I will suggest not to allow this thing, this dark thing that we can help have more control over, rob you of the joy of this relationship. 
And I think that that's exactly what this is. New York City is a, I can say this safely, kids. New York City is a relationship. And just like Teach is saying, in a relationship, sometimes you look at someone that you love and you're like, why do they chew like that? <laughs> why does New York chew like that? <laughs> why do you chew like that? There's no person in the world you want to be like, I just shut up than the person you love, right? No one incites more rage than someone you love. No one, be it romantic, familial, friendship, right? Work, even. New York incites that rage where you're like, you know what? I can't with you. Like, you, why, why, do, why are you like this? But then, much like in a relationship, you remember why you love the way you love. And you're like, I love you so much. And it's how I feel about New York. Like, there'll be days where, you know, it's... <laughs> Carmina Barana up in this bitch. (laughs) You know, it's like, and you're so, oh my God. Then all of a sudden the breeze kicks in and the lights turn on and you're having a moment after having a nice coffee and you've probably eaten some ridiculously overpriced pastry and you're like, oh God, I love it here so much. And frankly, one of the things I used to say when I first moved here, not frankly, conversely, one of the things I used to say here was, you know, it was a mantra when I was when I was your age, Cheech, my first four years here, I'd go, just look up, look up. And I would look up and I'd remember everything that made me want to be here. Like, oh, you're here. And I still to this day go, holy shit, I live in New York. It's so cool. I'm still endlessly fascinated with it because... Unlike anywhere else I, I I could think of, and I'm sure people feel this love for their their home places too, but there's a love there that is palpable. It's like a relate like a real relationship. It's almost like a personified thing where I just love it so much. And I can say safely, 21 years in, that I love it more now than even ever before. And all the struggles that I've gone through here have made me who I am today. And I'm so grateful. And that three-year mark you're hitting, Cheech, that's so heartening to me that you're feeling those feelings because that first year, fuck, is rough. Just filled with regret. Oh my God. Just disappointment, regret, horror, then unmitigated bursts of accomplishment and joy. Because when you have a good day in the city, it's like, whoa. Like, you it's feel, unbelievable. You feel like you've conquered the world. Oh, when yeah. When you have a good day in New York City. The song is is not... There's a reason why even New Yorkers are like, you can play it. Like, because it's true. It really is. Like, when you've had a good day here, you're like, holy shit, I just did that in Manhattan. Or just New York City. It's all about all the boroughs. And, and that that's... But yeah, Tish, I, I really feel for you because that first year is is unbelievable. Second year, you start getting your bearings and you're like, oh, you know what? I think so. Right? I'm sure that is that how you felt? Yeah. I mean, it for me for me, I think the the shift that happened was the first time that I went home and I realized I missed New York. Yeah. Like it is such a strange, strange feeling. And it sneaks up on you. Mm-hmm. I don't Like, I I know very few people that, like, land in New York with, you know, 
they hit the ground running and they're like doing the thing. And I feel like I, I hit the ground running as about as much as you could yeah. do in New York. But I know very few people that adjust kind of like in an instant to New York. And you expect there to be this one day where like things click and you're like, yeah, I've got a handle on this city. But really what it is, is that there's one day where you look back and you go, wait, when did I become a New Yorker? Yes. 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 Um, and from that kind of from that moment on, you feel this intense loyalty. Yes. And so maybe, maybe it is a sense of, you know, maybe I am being a little naive brought upon by that loyalty. But the way I feel about it is that New York does bounce back. Yes. And it bounces back in different ways and it evolves and it changes. And the way that where we will bounce back to will be different from where we left. Yes. But as long as there are people here, there are people that love being here. And as long as that there are people, as long as there are people that love being here, New York will be okay. Absolutely. One million percent. It comes back and it is completely healthy to mourn the New York you knew. You know, it's like when you've lived in that great apartment and then you've nested and then you're like, oh shit. And even if you're moving into an apartment you still like, there's a mourning of that nest, right? And we've been nesting in the New York we knew. And it's just not going to be the same. I remember feeling the same thing after 9-11. I, I, I felt the morning of, oh, things will never be the same. But then somehow you just survive. And I know a lot of people are saying this is different. Of course it's different. But we, we'll, we'll, we'll be okay. We're, we're going to be okay. It is the nature of the city. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And the truth of the matter is, guys, there's one thing that really saves my ass every day. You just have to take this shit one day at a time. It's all you can really do. I know future tripping is a thing I think the kids say. Um, maybe not. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I have no idea. What is this? Okay, great. You, you don't? I have okay, no so idea. Okay, so it isn't. Because I, I looked at, I looked basically, I'm, I, uh, she just become my oracle to cool young people. Um, <laughs> along with Danny during this month, which has been wonderful. <laughs> well, because you're key, you know, it's true. Because I used to, when I was a teacher, all the like juniors and seniors in high school, I'd be like, oh, what's the cool thing? Like, what's the music? And they're like, oh, this is what we're listening to, Mr. Aaron. And they kept me cool. Now I'm kind of, you know, in my little curmudgeon, like, how am I just not making experimental theater? You know, so it's, I, half the time, I don't even know what the fuck is going on, to be honest. And someone's like, oh, did you see that? And I'm like, when did that start? It's like three years ago. And I'm like, oh, I was too busy dismantling a Sophocles inspired show about anyway. So, um, so yeah, future tripping is a term. God, how am I going to edit that thing? So the, so taking everything one day at a time is the kryptonite to future tripping. Future tripping is when you are, at least this is how I always took it literally so fucking worried about something happening in the future that we can't even predict. And as a type A person, obviously that's something you think about. Me as a theater producer, the whole thing we do is future trip because I'm like, okay, so in seven months, this is going to manifest because I'm going to start planning for it now. And in a weird way, 
even with that, I just have to kind of get the ball rolling on the mousetrap and then it starts to do the little thing and it makes this wheel turn and then the rubber band snaps and that slaps something else to turn another gear. And before I know it, I'm like, oh, the thing happened. But even in those circumstances, I find I have to just take it one day at a time. Otherwise, it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that seems to be an interesting way to possibly think about moving forward in New York City, which demographically, I can say from looking at analytics, my lovely listeners, most of you are from New York City, which I'm very touched by because normally New York City podcasts are listened to by everyone but New Yorkers. So New Yorkers, we love you. I love you. Um, I love us. I feel like if we just take this one day at a time and breathe through it, and we've all been broke before, especially people in the arts, and then suddenly we're not broke. It'll it'll happen. It it is it's it is fucking terrifying. But we've survived before, and I we're gonna survive again. Yeah, and I look. My feed is filled with people moving back home temporarily, permanently moving to LA temporarily, permanently. And LA, uh, I don't I, understand that. Sorry. <laughs> I, I do. I do kind of get it. I, I understand like New York is an expensive place to live just from a yeah, yeah. practical standpoint. It costs green to exist here. Not even like live comfortably just to exist here. It costs money. Oh yeah. So I, I understand it. If if that is where you are right now, if that is what is the most practical, realistic thing for you, great. I, I support you in your journey. You go do that. You go take care of business. Yeah. And if when you need to return, New York will be here taking care of its business. Yes. Yes, it's always here. I had a friend leave for five years and then he was so frustrated and I just said to him, I'm like, well, just come back. What? Just come back. Like, we're here. Like, it's, just come back. And he did and he's been very successful. I'm not saying that I was right, but it's that thing too. You're, the, that's the thing that makes New York special is you choose to leave. But it is this thing that's humming and breathing and waiting for you to be like, if you want to start this relationship again, I'm game. Yeah, it'll it'll be here. That's that's okay. Like if you if you need to take the time, you go take the time. You go sleep with other cities. <laughs> you you start, you know, your long-term relationship with Cleveland or something. Like you do that. Hmm. And if that's what ends up being the fulfilling relationship for you, terrific. If not, Come on back. It's fine. New Yorkers will still love you. New York will still love you. Absolutely. And the caveat to that, if you're going to leave, my suggestion to you is don't talk all that shit when you're exiting the door. Just because people think about that. It's like anything, you know? It's like when you leave a job, you want to leave with your head held high and everyone claps when you exit. It's like, okay, great. We'll see you when you come back. So. Uh, my suggestion to people is, you know, think about the way you exit a place. You want to exit with an energy that's going to welcome you back, which is feels contradictory to what you're saying, but, you know. But it's true. I mean, people always end a relationship with a sour taste in their mouth of oh, the yeah. right? Yeah. Like, there are very few people I know that are like, <laughs> really, truly mature enough to be like, we consciously uncoupled and really that's how it happened. Like, yes. 
And then we, we had brunch before we left. Right. There, you leave and there's a sour taste in your mouth for the relationship, but there is good there. There is always good. And in this city, there is always good to be mined. Um, yes. And so like, I think, any, yes, please. I think people do, do recognize that. If I could, I have a little bit of like a, a pop culture recommendation. I, maybe this is like why this has colored my, uh, my mindset towards New York City. Right yes, at the beginning please. of... Uh, quarantine, uh, the city we became by N.K. Jemison, who is my favorite science fiction writer. I say that uh, one more time. The city we became by N.K. Jemison. She's my favorite uh, sci-fi fantasy writer. That uh, released, and it really is like a three hundred page love letter to New York City. Um, and it it acknowledges. It acknowledges the the destructive parts of the city. It acknowledges the beautiful parts of the city. But it, while reading it at a time where we were in like lock lockdown, yeah, you know, this was like don't leave your house except to like go shopping for the apocalypse. Like yeah. that was I was reading it at that point of quarantine, and I felt this like burst of love for this city that was so quiet at the time. Yes. This, this in, incredible, like, uh, this incredible desire to let my city know that I loved it. That, like, I, I, I was going to, I was going to be here for it. That's a great recommendation. Yeah, I think reading, reading that right at the beginning of, Writing it right at the beginning of quarantine, while like the New York in the book was so vibrant and full of life, and the New York in real life was so quiet and empty, um, it it made me realize that like people will always see New York as what is written in that book, regardless of how desolate and empty, and no matter how many tumbleweeds are floating (laughs) across Times Square right now, literally, it, it will always be as vibrant as it is in that book in the hearts of New Yorkers. One million, zillion, billion percent. I'm so glad you feel that way as someone, and this is what I call it, uh, me and my buddies, when we hit four years, we said we graduated live college. Uh, (laughs) And it's true. You hit that four-year mark and you're like, that's right, I got my degree in living my life in New York. that's the jingle kids. Little yeah, bit. yeah. Like you've paid your taxes a couple times. And yeah. If you've lived there four years, you've moved four times. Like, yeah. 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 So, and to anyone thinking, you know, would I ever, you just trust your gut. You know what I mean? If you love it, come. It's, it's, it'll all work out in the end. And I personally feel safest here. <laughs> I feel like myself. And the one thing I love about New York to kind of wrap it up is, if you have the drive and the work ethic, which to live here is to have work ethic, which is one of the things that unites us, then what this city will allow you to do is incredible. I'm not saying it's easy, but you can have 15 careers here 
I'm not saying not to focus, but you can explore all these different facets of your life. I look back on my 21 years here and it's unbelievable to me when I'm like, oh yeah, that's when I was signed to Sony and they're trying to make me a recording artist. Oh yeah, that's when I was an assistant to a blah, blah, blah. Oh yeah, that's when I first started being like, you know, like a, like a teacher. Oh, and then I, oh, that's when I became the masterclass guy. And you know, it's like all these things. And I'm like, what the fuck? What are all these lives? But it was just what I was giving my energy to that all led me to this place. And the one thing that was the unifying frame of that is that anywhere I went, I was a New York city dot, dot, dot. And that was amazing. Mm. And it is amazing to be a part of that. And it, it's deeper than theater. There's, there's all kinds of lives you can live here. Live here with that. My New Yorkers who are listening, and some people in Europe. My God, I, the, there's the people in other parts of the of the world are listening to this, which I'm so excited about. Hello to you. We love you. I'm so glad you're you're tuning in, and you know we hope you keep tuning in. And I'm I'm so happy that you've been here and you've been supporting us, and that you've been loving listening to this brilliant man, Cheech and Danny expound with their youthful knowledge and passion and uh you know slide into the dms if you want to talk to these boys and say something to them or ask us a question for this final episode next week cheech i cannot believe it oh it's it went really fast yeah it's so funny because you know when you say it to people in the arts i'm like well it's a month and everyone's like oh well i mean four episodes okay and then before you know it even i and me doing all of them i'm like oh shit the boys are going to be gone Fuck. You know, it's, it's so it's been such a gift to like get to know you guys. And it really is a, an amazing journey. And, you know, I actually, Chish, I'm going to say this before we sign off. I, I'm realizing what that came from now. You get to know people through process. Like 16 bars isn't going to do it. You know, five minutes to me, I don't know anything about you. And I was so interested in having that part of the mindset of theater that like, if we keep doing things for a few weeks, we're going to discover stuff. And I'm realizing now that it's really what's at the heart of the show was that I wanted to get to know people's thoughts. And we're so limited on time in the world. And in theater, we learn that as we unpack and unpack and unpack, everything keeps getting more interesting. So it's been kind of cool in a way to almost have like this theater experience. Absolutely. I would, I would say so. You know what I mean? Where you're like, you you got your cast members and you're like, I can't believe we're not going to be doing Footloose next week. Um, <laughs> I know. It was like really hard and like, let's hear it for the boy. Always like hurt my Achilles heel, but I'm going to miss this show. I yeah, don't miss I feel like next smell. week I want you guys to like sign my yearbook or something. I know, I agree. But let's not mourn. Let's not mourn. We got one more. Uh, Cheech, thank you so much. Danny, Send love out to you as you make sure that you're nice and safe as a producer, which I'm so proud of him. Guys, just wait for it. This fucking kid not playing games. In the meantime, thank you for all your wonderful five-star reviews. Please keep the love going. It really means the world to all of us. Until then, be healthy, be actionable, and most importantly, be authentic. Much love. For Fuck's Sake Podcast is brought to you by Alvarez Kiko Salazar Productions, hosted and produced by Aaron Salazar. Original music by Manuel Paleo and Giancarlo Bonfanti. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at 4FS underscore podcast and on Twitter and Facebook at 4FS Podcast. Thanks so much. Much love.